Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Uh, Good morning, John. You know, it's that time of year again where everybody is getting ready to finalize their injury logs and and they're reconciling uh, their 301s against their 300s and and then pushing that into their 300As. And I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. We're both getting a lot of questions about record keeping. So I wondered if maybe you are up uh, for a discussion about what is recordable and uh, and what constitutes an establishment for our podcast this morning. Well, Frank, for you and our clients, I'm up for anything. Let's knock this out. We're going to start with the first standard, 1904.7. And anybody can find this standard by going to a search engine, typing in 29 space CFR space 1904.7. And pretty much any search engine will just take you right to that standard in the in the OSHA regulations. And then uh, the OSHA regulations are laid out in a, in a kind of, I, I wouldn't say fun, but an interactive way where it's question answer. And it's a, it's a nice format to follow. And, and candidly, it's a good place to start. Under the very first paragraph of that regulation, 1904.7, it's uh, paragraph A. It provides the, the uh, basic requirement, and it says uh, the basic requirement for recordability, and it provides that you must consider an injury or illness to meet the general recording criteria and therefore to be recordable if it results in death, days away from work, restricted work, or transfer to another job, medical treatment beyond first aid, or loss of consciousness. But that's not where the inquiry ends. You must also consider a case to meet the general recording criteria if it involves a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, even if it does not result in death, days away from work, restricted work or job transfer, medical treatment beyond first aid, or loss of consciousness. Significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, that is written in the disjunctive. So it's, an, it's, a, it's either a significant injury or illness diagnosed by a physician that must be recorded. The, the latter, illness diagnosed by physician or other licensed healthcare professional. But John, significant injury is not intuitive. And we do get questions about, well, what is a significant injury? Is there a place that I can go to figure out what a significant injury is? So Frank, if you scroll down to the bottom of the page for 1904.7, OSHA has laid out a definition for significant diagnosed injury illness that's recorded. And what what, did, what does OSHA consider to be a significant uh, injury or illness? So those are work-related cases involving cancer, chronic irreversible disease. So for chronic irreversible disease, 
we're talking about things like asbestosis, silicosis, and, and, and similar types of diseases where once you have them, they're never going to go away and they're never going to improve a fracture or cracked bone or a punctured eardrum. And that's under part 1904.7, paragraph B7. Pretty easy to, to maneuver. Just take a look at it and, and it, it's laid out for you right there. And I would add, Frank, I mean, you know, one of the things that a lot of folks don't do, you know, even if they get to that part of the web page, you know, they overlook the fact that there's that 1904.7 B7 is highlighted as a hyperlink. They overlook the fact that if you click on the hyperlink, you know, that there's, there's various options that pop up on your screen. And one of those is standard interpretations. And in the standard interpretations, yeah, because some of these things, you know, like, you know, is, you know, some sort of kidney disease, a chronic irreversible disease. And so sometimes it's important for the employer to look at those standard interpretations and see whether or not that's yeah, that, that's that's a graduate course on standard reading and standard interpretation, but you're exactly right. Fair if enough. You see, if you see a blue hyperlink uh, under any of these standard numbers, then it's uh, real easy to to go to that next level, and it's it's interconnected very well, and and it has been for decades. It's uh, maybe as long as the internet's been around. So let me take you to uh, section nineteen oh four point seven B three, and OSHA posits the question in the regulation: How do I record a work related injury or illness that results in days away from work? So in the column on the OSHA 300 log, you record the number of days away from work that the employee experiences as a result of the incidents. You have to do the recording within seven days of the uh, employer becoming aware of the injury. And so sometimes it requires that you make an estimate, but you count the number of calendar days away from work that you're anticipating or expecting that the employee is going to be away from work. Yeah. So you must enter an estimate of the days the employee will be away and then update the day count when the actual number of days is, is known. Correct. Correct. And quite frankly, you know, there, there are some guidance out there that suggests that, you know, if that estimate gets longer over time, you should periodically update it. Uh, and under paragraph B three one, do I count the day on which the injury occurred or the illness began? No, no. And in fact, this just came up this week in, a, in an example where you know somebody took off today to go to the physician, went to the physician, came back, and the client wasn't sure whether or not that was a, a something where you counted that day away from work, and that's not the day you, you don't count the day of the injury. B32 is one of my favorite questions. How do I record an injury or illness when a physician or other licensed healthcare professional recommends that the worker stay at home, but the employee comes to work anyway? Well, you know, that physician or licensed healthcare provider probably creating the days away from work or, or, or the excuse for days away from work based on sound medical logic, reasoning, and, and, and diagnosis. And so the fact that the employee decides to come to work 
quicker than that doesn't change the amount of time off. You have to follow whatever the physician or licensed healthcare provider orders. So conversely then, under subparagraph B33, how do I handle a case when a physician or other licensed healthcare professional recommends the worker return to work, but the employee stays at home anyway? Fortunately, Ocean said, we're going to follow whatever the physician or licensed healthcare provider says. So even if the employee doesn't feel up to returning to work or, or, or doesn't want to come back or whatever the case is, but the physician or licensed healthcare provider said four weeks, it's four weeks. And, and the employer doesn't have to rely on the employees, you know, how, how they feel about returning back to work um, to dictate how many days away from work we're counting. Subparagraph B34 asks, how do I count weekends, holidays, or other days the employee would not have worked anyway? Well, so Frank, is it B34 or is it B3IV? Well, it's B3IV, but I, I think you read it B34, don't you? That's how I read it. But I just got to give you a little hard time. Okay, uh, fair enough. You count the calendar days the person was unable to work, regardless of whether or not they were scheduled. And regardless of whether it's a weekend holiday or whatever. It's just Correct. a straight calendar Correct. day count. Correct. Uh, John, let's talk about uh, subparagraph B37 or VII, as you pointed out a moment ago. Is there a limit to the number of days away from work uh, that an employer must count? Yeah, you, you cap the total number of days at 180. Let's talk about paragraph B39. Uh, if a case occurs in one year but results in days away during the next year, uh, do I record the case in both years? No, no. You, you only uh, record the case in the, or, or let me rephrase that, you only record the injury or illness one time. And so that would be in the year that the injury or illness took place. Under subparagraph B41, how do I decide if the injury or illness resulted in restricted work? So this one is a little bit broader than the days away provision. So this determination is, it does involve an element of the employer and how they interact with the employee. So you have the default, which is the physician or licensed healthcare provider recommend that the employee not perform one or more of the routine functions of the job, that they not work a full day, that they um, otherwise would have been scheduled to work. But then there's a second piece where if you as the employer decide that you don't want the employee to perform one or more of the routine functions of the job from working a full work day that you would that the employee would otherwise work, then that is also something that is counted as a restricted duty day. I, I would throw a caveat in here though, and, and it's it that has to be as a result of or that should be as a result of the injury as opposed to you, you think the person needs retraining or you think the person needs you know, some sort of, you know, additional refinement or what have you. And, and before you put them back to kind of, you know, that process, you, you need them to go through the retraining or refinement or, or whatever the case might be. This is as a result of the injury or illness that they sustained, you had them go to a different job. And I think that that anticipated my question under subparagraph B4, 4 or IV. Under subparagraph B4, 5, 
How do I record a case where the worker works only for a partial work shift because of a work-related injury or illness? Well, that would be, so if the employee is working a partial shift because of a work-related injury or illness, then that's recorded as a restricted duty case. Under subparagraph B4-7, how do I handle vague restrictions from a physician or other licensed healthcare professional, such as that the employee engage only in light duty or take it easy for a week? So, um, unfortunately, the standard is actually a little bit unclear. And unfortunately, there's not a standard interpretation on it. Um, but, but the answer to the question and, and what Frank has been talking about with regard to these standards is, is, you know, in the 29 CFR 1904 record keeping standards, there are a number of them that are set up where it's kind of a question and answer. And so the answer to that question as laid out in the standard is if you are not clear about the physician or other licensed healthcare professionals recommendation you may ask that person whether the employee can do all of his or her routine job functions and work all of his or her normally assigned work shift. When they're referring to the, asking that person, I'm assuming they're referring to the physician or other licensed healthcare professional. That's certainly my expectation, right? I mean, it's encouraging the employer to reach out and get clarification. And then, you know, to, to spoil, to spoil the ending, they said, but if you can't get the additional information, or if you don't try to get the additional information, uh, then you've got to record the injury or illness as a case that involves restricted work, period. Right? Right. To me, that's pretty plain, right? Either get clarification if you if you don't understand it, and if you don't want to make the effort, or, or which I think is a bad idea, but or if you can't get clarification, then it's got to be recorded as a, as a restricted case. Yeah, and I mean, on that last sentence or so of your answer or your comment, you know, the reality is I think a lot of employers reaching out to a physician or or, or licensed healthcare provider. And if, if for whatever reason, I don't say we're a licensed healthcare provider, that's, you know, should be implied in anything that I'm saying here. Yeah. I think a lot of employers, when they reach out to the physician or licensed healthcare provider, they don't get much of an answer, if any answer at all, uh, because, you know, the physicians are concerned about HIPAA violations, et cetera. And so I, I agree with you. I think it, it is wise to, to make the effort, but I also think that, um, you know, unfortunately, given the nature of privacy and healthcare, a lot of times the employer is not going to get a whole lot of information. Yeah, there certainly are challenges, but sometimes you can do an end run using the workers' comp carrier if it's work related. Oh, yeah. yeah, or if you send them to your OCMED clinic, and that's where the restriction comes from. There should be, you know, some understanding by the physician of, okay, look, this, this, I need clarity. This, this restriction doesn't make sense to me. Uh, subparagraph B48, what do I do if a physician or other licensed healthcare professional recommends a job restriction meeting OSHA's definition, but the employee does all of his or her routine job functions anyway? Well, so... You're supposed to record the injury or illness as a restricted case, a restricted duty case. And you have to ensure that the employee 
complies with the restriction, where it starts to get a little bit murky and a little bit gray is when you have a couple of physicians rendering alternative opinions and you have to decide, you know, one, one says lift no more than 10 pounds, one says lift no more than 20 pounds. And you got an employee who's lifting 15 pounds for their their day-to-day activities. You know, there's some decision-making there that has to be engaged in, in terms of um, which one is most authoritative, which one is most credible, which one you think is most appropriate. I'm going to move us to subparagraph B411. How do I count days of job transfer or restriction? The same way as you do days away from work. So those things that we talked about earlier from the standpoint of calendar days, capped at 180, et cetera. But of course, if you permanently assign the injured or ill employee to a job that's been modified or permanently changed in a manner that eliminates routine functions, uh, the employee was restricted from performing. But we can then stop the day count uh, when the modification or change to the job is made permanent, right? Correct. Uh, however, I think the caveat to that is you must record at least one day of restricted work or job transfer for those types of cases. Right. Look, here's the reality. I don't know how often this comes up in your practice, but that question almost never comes up in mine because the person who's on the widget press is expected to go back to the widget press and they're not expected to go to some other position in, in their place of employment. And there aren't permanent changes made to the essential elements of a job just to accommodate an injury. I get that. Right. Yeah, um, I get that. Jumping down to subparagraph B55, what if a physician or other licensed healthcare professional recommends medical treatment, but the employee doesn't follow the recommendation? Well, so we probably sh- should step back and just touch briefly on medical treatment and you know what the definition of medical treatment is. Medical treatment is kind of defined in the uh, negative, which you know basically is medical care beyond first aid. So it's, it's, it's one of those where it's like, okay, if it's, if, it's, if it's not first aid and they're providing treatment, it's considered medical treatment. You bring up a good point about the definition of medical treatment, John, and uh, subparagraph B5I defines what constitutes medical treatment um, in the negative, as you say. Uh, And it specifically says that medical treatment does not include visits to a physician for observation or counseling. Uh, It does not uh, include the conduct of diagnostic procedures such as x-rays and blood tests. And it does not include first aid. And first aid is defined um, uh, under subparagraph B5-2 and goes through all of those elements. So, I think that was that's a, a that's a fair call out. Was there something else you wanted to talk about uh, with regard to medical treatment? Well, the, the the biggest thing I wanted to talk about was that you know from this two things. One is there is a lot of information available on the OSHA website relative to whether it's FAQs or standard interpretations or whatever that talk about you know, kind of the differentiation or, or what is medical treatment and what is not in particular. And I think we're going to be coming to this. What is first aid? Because things that are first aid are not considered medical treatments. Yeah. So walk us through that. That's, 
I mean, that's the, you know, the first aid is, is outlined under subparagraph B52. Yeah, sure. So the first thing is the use of non-prescription medication at non-prescription strength. So let's take as a, for instance, ibuprofen. If the label on the bottle says you take two of these 200 milligram tablets, that's the non-prescription strength. Having been prescribed ibuprofen in the past, I know that the prescription strength is 800 milligrams. Well, getting to 800 milligrams by taking four over-the-counter tablets doesn't mean that I'm using non-prescription medication at non-prescription strength. It means, it means just using, the opposite. Exactly. It means I'm using it at prescription strength. So right. it, it can't. You can't use those prescription medications at prescriptions, non-prescription medications at prescription strength, and still call it first aid. So if treating a physician in an ER, an emergency room, prescribes ibuprofen for somebody um, and says, just go buy it at your local drugstore and take four of the 200 milligrams, uh, that's taking taking ibuprofen at a prescription strength, even though it's, uh, it's sold over the counter. Correct. And that makes it medical treatment. And recordable. Correct. Administering tetanus immunizations is another thing that's considered first aid and only first aid. Other immunizations, however, so whether it's hepatitis B, rabies, what have you, those are considered medical treatments. Cleaning, flushing, and soaking surface wounds, first aid. Using wound coverings such as bandages, gauze pads, etc., butterfly strips, butterfly bandages, steri strips, those are considered first aid and not medical treatment. The use of glue, and it depends, I've seen it go both ways, but I think the prevailing consensus of position at this point is super glue and some of the other newer methods that are not enumerated, those are considered medical treatments. Because they'd be considered wound closing devices like switches or staples that are definitely medical treatment according to the standard. Absolutely. Hot and cold therapy, that's not considered uh, medical treatment. That's considered first aid. Non-rigid means of support, elastic bandages, wraps, non-rigid back belts, um, that type of thing. Those are considered first aid, not medical treatment. But if the physician or licensed healthcare provider uses something with some sort of rigid stay or something else to immobilize the body part beyond the bandage or or, or the wrap or or whatever we want to call it, that is considered medical treatment for record-keeping purposes. In the emergency response, so somebody puts you on a backboard, somebody uh, puts a, a splint on you, somebody puts a sling on you, somebody puts a neck collar on you, to transport you from the job site to licensed healthcare provider. Because a paramedic or, a, or an emergency responder will always do that. Just yeah. To, that's just part of their standard protocol. Exactly. Um, that's considered first aid and not medical treatment. Now, critical piece, temporary immobilization devices while transporting an accident victim. So that same device, that neck brace may never have been changed out for a new neck brace, 
But if you leave the hospital with that neck brace still in place, that's medical treatment. Trilling fingernails, toenails to relieve pressure or draining fluid from blisters, um, those are that's considered first aid. Eye patches are considered first aid. Removing foreign bodies from the eye using only irrigation or a cotton swab is first aid, not medical treatment. But if they step it up to use a tweezers to get that foreign body out, that is medical treatment. Removing splinters or foreign materials from other areas using irrigation, tweezers, cotton swabs, or other simple means is first aid. Finger guards, first aid. Massages, first aid. But physical therapy and chiropractic treatment are considered medical treatment for purposes of record keeping. Um, drinking fluids for relief of heat stress is first aid. IV administration of fluids is medical treatment. And that that's the list. All right. So that takes me back to the question I asked before that started this cavalcade of response. Subparagraph B55, and this will be the last question that I ask you of the day. What if a physician or other licensed healthcare professional recommends medical treatment, but the employee does not follow the recommendation? As has been the case kind of throughout the standard, you still have to record whatever the physician or licensed healthcare provider recommends as opposed to what the employee actually does. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that that consistency uh, is, is apparent throughout the standard. I agree with that. John, that's what I wanted to cover today. I really appreciate you uh, entertaining me, uh, uh, being the answer guy. Uh, anything you think we should add to this before? Oh, well, there is. Oh, my goodness. That's not it, actually, because what is an establishment, by the way? We promised to talk about establishments under 1904.30, and I darn near glossed right over that. Let's back up for why an establishment is important, Frank. The reason an establishment or the definition of establishment is important is because you keep the OSHA records for the establishment. So if you have a large employer with multiple establishments, and I'll define, I'll explain what the definition is of an establishment in a minute. Yeah, you see, that's why I wanted to start with the definition of establishment first, so then we could talk about it. But th- this is okay, too. We can do it your way. I- I'm no, flexible. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm tripping us up all over the place today. You have multiple 300 logs. You have multiple 300 ones, you have multiple 300 A's. So OSHA defines an establishment as a single physical location where business is conducted, services or industrial operations are performed. And each of those establishments must have its own injury logs. Correct. There, there are some exceptions to that, but there, there are some limited circumstances under which that's true. So you can combine two or more physical locations. So you have a Beaumont office, you have a Houston office, you have a Dallas office. If the employer operates those locations as a single business operation under common management, the locations are all located in close proximity to one another and the employer keeps one set of business records for those locations, such as the records on the number of employees, wages, salaries, sales and receipts, and other kinds of business information. So if you treat 
th- the Beaumont, Houston, Dallas office as essentially one location with one set of records, assuming you meet the geographical definition as, as being located in close proximity to each other, you could keep one OSHA 300 log. But, you know, those, there's a separation of 100 miles between Beaumont and Houston and between Beaumont and Dallas and Houston and Dallas, you know, it's, it's 200, 250 miles. I don't think there's any way you can justify that. I think you have to keep three separate logs. Now, if we're talking about XYZ Corp has three locations in Beaumont, all within a few blocks of each other, all run using basically the same set of books, all managed as one operation. Uh, yeah, you could keep a single establishment. You could call that yeah, a single Yeah, I thought that exception was more for the manufacturing plant on the left side of the street and the DC on the right side of the street, uh, treating that as one location. Um, but I think that's a, that, that, that's a factual analysis every time. Agreed. The main thing I wanted to focus on is the definition of establishment, just being that single location where business is conducted. And, and you know, the, maybe the one exception is that if it's uh, not open for a full year at a time, then, then there can be certain exceptions that flow from that, right? If it's less than a 365-day operation. Right. And, and I mean, there's also, I mean, the converse is also true where you could have a single physical location treated as two establishments. You know, so to me, let's, let's take your example where it's not a street that's separating the DC from the manufacturing facility. It's a, it's a, a sidewalk, you know, because you're treating those as two different facilities, two different NAICS codes, et cetera. You could treat those as two separate establishments, even though, you know, geographically, they're basically the same location. Yeah. Because they're, they're different business lines, right? It's a, it's an easy justification to treat them as two businesses or two establishments. But there's the big caveat in 1904-46-1-4 that it has to be a situation where in terms of those business records, you know, whether it's, you know, personnel files, uh, sales and receipts and other business information, those records have to be maintained separately also. This has been a good talk, John, and uh, I'd like to thank all our listeners for joining us on the uh, uh, Frank and John Fun with Regulation show. Imagine we'll do this again real soon, as soon as we get a bunch of questions and need to answer more through another uh, broad medium. Uh, So thanks, John. Hey, Frank, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure, and um, we'll be chatting soon, I'm sure. All right. Everybody have a great day, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.